This episode of The Science of Survival is brought to you by Bombas Socks, a company that put as much research into making better socks as shoe companies have put into making better shoes. Bombas Invisito system gets rid of that weird bump at the front of most socks, and their honeycomb support around the arch keeps everything perfectly in place. It's almost like everyone else underestimated how good socks could actually be. And because we have a survival show, and today's episode is about hypothermia, I started looking into how else socks might have been underestimated. What else might they be good for in the cold? The Army Survival Field Manual recommends wearing two pair of socks, with dried grass, moss, or feathers stuffed in between them for extra insulation. You can do the same on your hands for improvised mittens. And on the ice, wool socks worn on the outside of your shoes will actually improve traction. It has to do with the fibers and how they spread out. Bomba socks, best inside your shoes, but useful elsewhere. Now available in merino wool. And for every pair purchased, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. Save 20% by visiting bombas.com slash outside and enter outside during checkout. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash outside. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the science of survival. So even though we're just getting started, I got to say the nice thing about hosting a show about survival is that even at the very beginning of the very first episode, there's not much explaining to do. We're going to be dealing with life and death on this show. Stories like that don't need much introduction. But to introduce myself, I'm Peter Frickwright. I'm going to be your guide through this series. Robbie Carver and I produced the show together. You'll hear from him in just a little bit. We've got stuff coming up for you about getting struck by lightning, uh, about dying of thirst, and the physiological adaptations that our bodies make and don't make when we're going without water. We're also doing this really strange sort of mystery about what may or may not have happened inside a shipwreck off the coast of Mexico. But here's the thing. All the rest of our stories happen to other people. This one actually happens to you. It starts right now, when you check your voicemail. You have one unheard message. First unheard message. Hey, it's me. Just checking in. Wanted to see if you're coming out to the party tonight. Hot tub is fired up. Uh, dinner's at 8, so um, hope to see you. Give me a call back. If you're going to come out, make sure you're careful. It's really cold out there. So, talk to you soon. Bye. When your Jeep spins lazily off the mountain road and high centers on a snowbank, you don't worry immediately about the cold. Your first thought is that you've just dented your bumper. Your second is that you failed to bring a shovel. Your third is that you'll be late for dinner. You're stuck. As you left town, the thermometer at the gas station read minus 27. But a little cold never hurt anyone with enough fleece and the sense to keep moving. The cold is a fact of life in your mountain town. The price of admission for your favorite sports. Most of the time, cold means fun. You check your watch. 718. You consult your map. A thin, switch-backing line snakes up the mountain to the penciled square that marks the cabin. 
It's maybe five or six miles to that penciled square. You run that far every day before breakfast, and you've got cross-country skis on the roof rack. This'll be no problem. Cold slaps your naked face, squeezes tears from your eyes. Breath rolls from you in short, frosted puffs. The jeep lies cocked sideways in the snowbank, like an empty turtle shell. You think of firelight and hot tubs and warm food and wine. There is no precise core temperature at which the human body perishes from cold. Using cold water immersion baths, Nazi doctors calculated death to arrive around 77 degrees Fahrenheit. The lowest recorded core temperature in a surviving adult is 60.8 degrees. For a child, it's lower. In 1994, a two-year-old girl in Saskatchewan wandered out of her house and into a minus 40 degree night. She was found near her doorstep the next morning, her limbs seemingly frozen solid, her core temperature 57 degrees. She lived. But for all that scientists and statisticians have learned about freezing and its physiology, no one can yet predict how quickly and in whom hypothermia will strike, and whether it will kill when it does. The cold does not reveal its motives. The process begins when you remove your gloves to squeeze a loose pin back into one of your ski bindings. The freezing metal bites your flesh. Your skin temperature drops. Within a few seconds, the palms of your hands are a chilly, painful 60 degrees. As the web of surface capillaries on your hands constrict, blood courses away from your skin and deeper into your torso. Your body is allowing your fingers to chill in order to keep its vital organs warm. If you were a Norwegian fisherman or an Inuit hunter, both of whom frequently work gloveless in the cold, your chilled hands would open their surface capillaries periodically to allow surges of warm blood to pass into them and maintain their flexibility. This phenomenon, known as the hunter's response, can elevate a 35 degree skin temperature to 50 degrees within seven or eight minutes. Other human adaptations to the cold are more mysterious. Tibetan Buddhist monks can raise the temperature of their hands and feet by 15 degrees through meditation. Australian Aborigines, who once slept on the ground, unclothed on near-freezing nights, would slip into a light hypothermic state, suppressing shivering until the rising sun rewarmed them. You have no such defenses just an athlete's tendency to sweat. (sighs) Only after about 10 minutes of hard climbing, as your body temperature rises, does blood start seeping back into your fingers. 
Sweat soaks your chest and trickles down your spine. You check your map. You're below a switchback. You decide it would be faster to cut up the hillside instead of following the road. But after an hour, there's still no sign of the switchback, and you've begun to worry. At this moment, your core temperature reaches its high, 100.8. Climbing in deep snow, you've generated nearly 10 times as much body heat as you do when you are resting. And then... The loose pin has disappeared from your binding. You lift your foot, and your ski falls from your boot. Stopping to search, your own body heat starts to work against you. Your capillaries, dilated by exercise, carry heat from your core out to your skin, and your wet clothing dispels it rapidly into the night. The lack of insulating fat over your muscles allows the cold to creep that much closer to your warm blood. Your temperature begins to plummet. Within 17 minutes, it reaches the normal 98.6. Then it slips below. At 97 degrees, hunched over in your slow search, the muscles along your neck and shoulders tighten in what's known as pre-shivering muscle tone. The temperature control center in your hypothalamus has ordered the web of surface capillaries in your skin to constrict. Your hands and feet begin to ache with cold. Oh, come on. Ignoring the pain, you dig carefully through the snow. Another 10 minutes pass. You've been cold before, but this feels different. Without the pin, you know you're in deep trouble. But then, you feel your finger brush past it in the snow. You even manage to pop it back into its socket and clamp your boot into the binding. But the clammy chill that started around your skin has now wrapped deep into your body's core. At 95 degrees, you've entered the zone of mild hypothermia. You're now trembling violently as your body attains its maximum shivering response. You're too cold to think of the beautiful night. You think only of the warm jeep that waits for you somewhere at the bottom of the hill. You fumble out the map. You consulted it to get here. It should be able to guide you back to the warm car. It doesn't occur to you in your increasingly clouded and panicky mental state that you could simply follow your tracks down the way you came. By the time you push off downhill, your muscles have cooled and tightened so dramatically that they no longer contract easily. And once contracted, they won't relax. You're locked into an ungainly, spread-armed, weak-kneed snowplow. Moments later, your skis catch on a buried log. 
The crash leaves your ankle burning in a way you know is bad. You've also lost your hat and a glove. Scratchy snow is packed down your shirt. Meltwater trickles down your neck and spine, joined soon by a thin line of blood from a small cut on your head. Your heat begins to drain away, and you're becoming too weary to feel any urgency. You decide to have a short rest. An hour passes. You barely notice. At one point, a stray thought says you should start being scared. But fear is a concept that floats somewhere beyond your immediate reach, like that numb hand lying naked in the snow. You've slid into the temperature range at which cold renders the enzymes in your brain less efficient. With every one degree drop in body temperature below 95, your cerebral metabolic rate falls off by three to five percent. When your core temperature reaches 93, amnesia nibbles at your consciousness. You'll remember little of what happens next. In the minus 35 degree air, your core temperature falls about one degree every 30 to 40 minutes. Apathy at 91 degrees. Stupor at 90. You've now crossed the boundary into profound hypothermia. By the time your core temperature has fallen to 88 degrees, your body has abandoned the urge to warm itself by shivering. Your blood is thickening. Your oxygen consumption has fallen by more than a quarter. Your kidneys, however, work overtime to process the fluid overload that occurred when the blood vessels in your extremities constricted and squeezed fluids towards your center. You feel a powerful urge to urinate. It's the only thing you feel at all. By 87 degrees, you've lost the ability to recognize a familiar face, should one suddenly appear from the woods. At 86 degrees, your heart becomes arrhythmic as chilled nerve tissues hamper its electrical impulses. It now pumps less than two-thirds the normal amount of blood. Meanwhile, the lack of oxygen and the slowing metabolism of your brain begin to trigger, trigger, trigger auditory, auditory hallucinations. Be careful, it's cold out there. Attempting to stand. You collapse in a tangle of skis and poles. 
that's okay. You can crawl. The Jeep, it's so close. Except hours later, or maybe it's minutes, you realize it's nowhere to be found. You've crawled only a few feet. When your core temperature reaches 85 degrees, you feel the intense need to tear off your clothes. Though researchers are uncertain of the cause, the most logical explanation is that shortly before loss of consciousness, the constricted blood vessels near the body's surface suddenly dilate and produce a sensation of extreme heat against the skin. All you know is that you're burning. But then, in a final moment of clarity, you realize you're lying alone in the bitter cold, naked from the waist up. You grasp your terrible misunderstanding, a whole series of misunderstandings, like a dream ratcheting into wrongness. Be careful, it's cold out there. <laughs> You've shed your clothes, your car, your house in town with its furnace all the layers that keep you warm. Hope you can make it. There's an adage about hypothermia. You aren't dead until you're warm and dead. In fact, cold can offer a perverse salvation. Cold slows down bacterial growth and chemical reactions. In the human body, it shuts down metabolism. The lungs take in less oxygen. The heart pumps less blood. At normal temperatures, this would produce brain damage. But the chilled brain, having slowed its own metabolism, needs far less oxygen-rich blood and can under the right circumstances, survive intact. You are lucky. Your friends, worried at your absence, came looking. Your rescuers quickly wrap your naked torso with a spare parka, your hands with mittens, your entire body with a bivy sack. At the hospital, your stiff, curled form is slid onto a table fitted with a mattress filled with warm water which will be regularly reheated. Your heart is beating at only 24 beats per minute. Your temperature is 79.2 degrees. These numbers are near unheard of and you are in danger of dying from being saved. In rewarming shock, the constricted capillaries reopen almost all at once, causing a sudden drop in blood pressure. The slightest movement can send a victim's heart muscle into wild spasms of ventricular fibrillation. In 1980, 16 shipwrecked Danish fishermen were hauled to safety after an hour and a half in the frigid North Sea. They then walked across the deck of the rescue ship, stepped below for a hot drink, and dropped dead, all 16 of them. Your temperature continues to drop 
78.9. You're now experiencing afterdrop, in which residual cold, close to the body's surface, continues to cool the core even after the victim is removed from the outdoors. Elevating the core temperature of an average size male one degree requires adding about 60 kilocalories of heat. You would need to consume 40 quarts of chicken broth to push your core temperature up to normal. The doctor slides a large catheter into an incision in your abdominal cavity. Warm fluid begins to flow from a suspended bag, washing through your abdomen and draining out through another catheter. The solution warms the internal organs. The warm blood in the organs is then pumped by your heart throughout the body, like a car radiator in reverse. Your stiff limbs begin to unclench, as if death is slowly losing its hold on you. For another hour, nurses and EMTs hover around the edges of the table where you lie centered in a warm pool of light. Fluid lost through sweat and urination has reduced your blood volume. But every 15 or 20 minutes, your temperature rises another degree. 85.3. Frostbite could still cost you fingers or an earlobe, but you appear to have beaten back the worst of the cold. 90.4 92.2 From somewhere far away in the immense, cold darkness, you hear a faint, insistent hum. Quickly, it mushrooms into a ball of sound like a planet rushing toward you. You sense heat and light playing against your eyelids, but beneath their warm dance, a deep chill continues to pull. You force open your eyes, lights glare overhead, faces hover atop uniformed bodies. You try to think, who are these people? Hypothermia. Not if you can understand me. You try to nod. Your neck muscles feel rusted shut, unused for years. They respond to your command with only a slight twitch. All you can feel is throbbing discomfort everywhere. Glancing down to your frostbitten hands, you notice blisters filled with clear fluid dotting your fingers, once gloveless in the snow. During the long, cold hours, the tissue froze and ice crystals formed in the tiny spaces between your cells, sucking water from them, blocking the blood supply. You stare at them absently. If the damage is superficial, the blisters will break in a week or so and the tissue will revive. If not, you know that your fingers will eventually turn black, bloodless, and dead. And then they will be amputated. Hours later, still sluggish and numb, you surface again as if from deep underwater. A warm tide seems to be flooding your midsection. Focusing your eyes with difficulty, 
You see tubes running into you, their heat mingling with your abdomen's depthless cold like a churned-up river. Someone speaks. Hi. Your eyes move from bright lights to shadowy forms in the dim outer reaches of the room. You recognize the voice. You're, you're back. It's one of the friends you set out to visit so long ago now. I didn't know if we'd lost you. You lurch as if to sob, but you can't make a sound. So you're left with the thought. Heat is tiny. Just a lit match in the night. It's the cold that is huge. Too big to see from up close. But you went so far away. You thought you knew the cold. Now you really do. It's breath. It's touch. It's voice. And deep inside, you shudder at the sound. It's Crystal Ligori as the narrator, Robbie Carver as the shivering victim. We went out in the snow to record this, and he volunteered to freeze himself. You don't learn that in school. Tara Murphy, the voice on the phone, did not volunteer. But still, we couldn't have done it without her. Thanks, Tara. Music by Jonathan Hirsch. Special thanks to Ashlyn Hatch, Alex Ward, and Emma Jacobs. Our website is outsideonline.com slash podcast. This story was based on a somewhat legendary magazine article by Peter Stark that Outside published back in 2004. We adapted it to make it work as a podcast, but the idea, most of the words, are his. After Robbie warmed up, he talked to Stark about that article. I'm all set. Okay. So yeah, I called up Stark at his home in Montana, and uh, we got to talking about how he came about writing this story. Some years ago, when I was writing a lot about snow and ice, my wife Amy and I went up to northern Greenland. and spent- He and his wife were freezing, bundled up in some of the best clothes that Western civilization has. And these Inuits basically were in windbreakers, just hanging out. And it really got him thinking. I started thinking, how could these people be so resistant to the cold? What's the physiological uh, mechanism? So when I got back, I said, well, I'm, I'm interested in writing an essay about the physiology of cold. And so this is great. What he decides to do is go to the coldest place in the country, Rogers Pass, which hit minus 70 back in 1954 on the coldest day of the year. And his plan is to just camp out and write about being cold. So when the coldest day of the year finally rolled around, they were predicting temperatures of something like 50 below with a 40 mile an hour wind. It sounded like a bad idea. It sounded lethal, as one of my Arctic explorer friends put it. So instead, Stark invented a character. He decided to write the story of what would happen if you went out. So I started playing around with that. You know, I started thinking about how one little mistake can lead to another, to another, to another. And there's an accumulation of mistakes that finally end up in a, in a really untenable, really awful situation. 
And that's what's so great about this story, right? It, this could happen to any of us. It, it's not these monumental moments. It's these seemingly inconsequential decisions that you don't even realize have added up to disaster until that disaster is already happening. There's a universal experience there that uh, that story seems to resonate with people. We have something very deeply rooted in us that that responds to heat and cold. And I think in some ways that story touches on that that deep response. And what's wild is that even now, like it's been 12 years, and the story goes viral every time the magazine puts it on their Facebook page. It, but it's so funny, that piece. I mean, it just it's like a zombie that comes back every winter. <laughs> you can find Stark's piece, The Cold Hard Facts of Freezing to Death, on Outside Online. You should check it out. This season of The Science of Survival is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More at sloan.org. Our next episode is the story of what happens to someone after they're struck by lightning. It's very different than today. We're pretty excited to share it with you. We'll see you then. I was just I was just picturing the narrator like trying to drag out <laughs> you've checked your map now. You know how far away it is. <laughs> like trying you to just keep talking. You don't need to keep checking your map. <laughs> this is this, where hypothermia begins. This map may be the death of you. <laughs> Alright, so we're just gonna cut that part out or should I start over? Uh no, we can just cut that part out. Okay.